Hello, aspirers, self-propellers, magic makers, and conscientious creators. I am Brooke Warner, and I'm here on the home stretch of our third year at this with my most gracious co-host and favorite person to talk writing process with, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, uh, today's guest is Rebecca Mackay, and she is the author of The Great Believers, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer and the National Book Award. Pretty amazing. Uh, and the novel has been widely praised for how Rebecca sensitively wrote about and embodied an experience that was so outside of her lived experience. Uh, and I'll just give readers or listeners rather uh, a little bit of a background in that her primary protagonist is Yale, uh, a young man whose friends are being decimated by the AIDS epidemic in the mid 1980s. And Rebecca wrote uh, about her own characters that they get in your mind and they become imaginary friends. Reading their stories, she said, I felt the magnitude of loss that the arrival of AIDS brought in a way that I, a straight white lady who was just learning to read when these men were dying, had never before. So I was thinking back to other episodes we've done on writing responsibly, notably with Daniel Jose Older uh, on appropriation and fiction and with Kirsten Chen. And those were actually two of my favorite episodes because I love thinking and talking about what's at stake when we write and these debates around what writers are allowed to write and what we give ourselves permission to write are so many things, you know, fascinating, sometimes problematic, important, relevant, and so much more. And so I am excited that we're going to circle around this idea of permission with Rebecca today. And I thought we might highlight a couple of the more important takeaways from Daniel and Kirsten's episodes as a way to get into it. Yeah, I love those episodes, and I often recommend Daniel's great piece that he wrote for BuzzFeed, 12 Fundamentals of Writing the Other and the Self, How to Respectfully Write from the Perspective of Characters that Aren't You. And I'm recommending uh, this again now to listeners uh, because that article centered our conversation. And I just want to read the intro to kind of uh, get into this topic of permission a little bit more today. Daniel says, we are always writing the other. We are always writing the self. We bump into this basic impossible riddle every time we tell stories. When we create characters from backgrounds different than our own, we're really telling the deeper story of our own perception. We muddle through these heated discussions at panels and comment sections on social media and classrooms, the intersections of power and identity, privilege and resistance. How do we respectfully write from the perspectives of others? And this is a super deep question. And he provides these 12 different perspectives on things to think about and be aware of when writing, you know, such as touching on the necessity and the limits of research thinking about how relations to power affect your characters and how you portray them. And the idea that racist writing is a craft failure, which I really liked. His piece really helps a writer build their self-awareness, which is a lifelong process, actually. So I recommend reading that in addition to listening to our conversation with him. And then in an episode with Kirsten Chen, it was fascinating because she was confronted with how a Singaporean audience would receive her book uh, before she gave a reading in Singapore. And she is a Singaporean citizen, but she's you know lived in the U.S. for a long time, I think maybe more than half of her life. So she questioned her knowledge of contemporary Singapore. And in fact, an older Singaporean woman confronted her after the reading. So she really had to think about this issue. So that brought up all sorts of questions for Kirsten, who was working on a historical novel that took place in China. You know, she wondered if she had the right to tell the story or what the lines of appropriation and cultural insensitivity might be as someone coming at the story 
both as an insider and an outsider. And so we had a fascinating conversation with her, and, and Kirsten is a wonderful friend of mine. So I recommend listeners check out both of these resources that they, as they ponder writing the other and the self, as Daniel puts it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great archived episodes that people can go look up. And uh, Rebecca Mackay has been widely lauded for doing this right, uh, this idea of being an ally rather than appropriating, and for being what Daniel Older called a conscientious creator. What I hope we get into today, Grant, is just about how permission giving to yourself basically is essential to being a conscientious creator because we're living in a moment where I think a lot of writers are feeling emotional extremes. You know, some are feeling uh, really scared to write outside of their own experience and some are feeling very hemmed in, like they want to do it, but then they're afraid of their own limitations or they're afraid of pushback. Uh, You know, some are even angry about that pushback that the larger culture seems to be imposing upon them. And actually in the, uh, the interview today with Rebecca, we're going to get into that a little bit, this idea of like how writers are policing each other. And so we're living in a very fraught moment. Uh, And I talk a lot with the writers I work with uh, about the importance of giving themselves permission because there is so much fear associated with writing and it comes in so many different forms because writers do care about getting it right. (laughs) They care about being authentic and truth telling both in fiction and memoir. And of course, they care about telling a good story and readers enjoying it and reaching readers in the first place. So really, this permission that we're talking about starts from day one, from the day that you decide that you're going to write a book in the first place. Uh, I would say there's a cultivation of that permission that continues or needs to continue throughout the entire writing of the book. Uh, So Grant, how do you recommend that writers cultivate permission in their own writing? And how do you overcome feeling like maybe you shouldn't, you know, in, in your own fiction? I love your phrase, cultivate permission. And I love this idea that you're you're cultivating permission from the very beginning. But I think in a lot of ways, it doesn't stop. You're always cultivating permission on some level. Um, it's just such a big and important question. And as you mentioned, there's there's really a cultural tension at the moment because writers have been traditionally taught that they have the right to inhabit any character they please, that this is not only a right, but a duty, and that we have the imagination to do so. Uh, But now there's also a very important realization that we need more than our imaginations because there are deeply entrenched histories of colonization and exploitation and inequality. So we need to go deep and we need to read articles like the ones Daniel and Kirsten wrote, and we need to build our own awareness. And in, in doing so, I hope we build our own abilities and our own courage and feel more strongly about the permission we give ourselves. One of Daniel's points is, and I'll, and I'll read from, from his uh, essay, he says, the fact that you will mess it up is not a reason not to do it. Um, in other words, fear of messing up can make a person silent. And he basically says that you're not going to get it perfect, but the only way to do it better is to try. And it's your duty to try. He says, you'll probably jack it up epically. I know I have. This doesn't mean don't do it. It means challenge yourself to do it better and better every time to learn from your mistakes instead of letting them cower you into a defensive crouch. The net result is you become a better writer. And I feel that's really true. And Rebecca really speaks to that eloquently. Yeah, Rebecca has so much to say on this topic, Grant. So I am super excited to hear from her. And it's a privilege to all of our listeners to hear what she has to say. And we will be right back after this short break.
Welcome back, everybody. We are so thrilled to have Rebecca Mackay with us today. She is the Chicago-based author of the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred-Year House, and The Borrower, as well as the short story collection Music for Wartime. The Great Believers was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award and received the ALA Carnegie Medal and the LA Times Book Prize, among other honors. All so fantastic, Rebecca. She's also on the MFA faculties of Sierra Nevada College and Northwestern University, and she's the artistic director of Story Studio Chicago. Hello, Rebecca. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. So happy to have you. And you know, your your latest book, The Great Believers, notably was a novel that took you far outside of your own lived experience and identity. Uh, for our listeners who haven't read it yet, it's about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s and its aftermath and impact on the people who survived it. And one of your protagonists is Yale, a young gay man who loses all of his friends to the epidemic. And so I wanted to start by asking you, a question I know you receive often, uh, which is about the responsibility, and especially in this age of own voices, where there's so much pushback about appropriation. And I'm wondering if we could start there, if you could share your own experience of what it was like to write outside of your experience and what advice you give to writers who want to do that well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would start by saying, not to be reductive, but if you're writing fiction that is not autobiographical fiction, you are going to be writing outside your own identity. You're going to be writing outside your lived experience. You're going to be writing from other genders, from other occupations, from other ethnicities, from other nationalities, or you're going to fill the book entirely with people like you, which is irresponsible in a completely different way. I think there are really useful conversations we're having right now um, around this topic. It needs to be discussed. The the own voices thing in hashtag seems to be particularly centered on the YA um, literature world. Hmm. Um, and I don't think has been, I think it's uh, um, a bit maybe too simplistic for even for YA, certainly, but also for adult literary fiction. There, there are two questions I needed to ask myself heading into this. One, first of all, was can I do this well and responsibly? And the other one was, even if I do it well and responsibly, am I adding to the conversation or am I taking voice away from people who have direct stories to tell? And that second question was actually fairly easy to answer in that I, I would have felt differently if this were um, a submission to an anonymous contest. I would have felt differently if I were submitting it as a story to a magazine or a, an anthology where its inclusion would preclude someone else being there. But the way that book publishing works is that the success of any one novel means more novels like it are going to get published. And that, you know, I, I'm seeing my book used as a comp, as a, you know, uh, in the publishing world in the past couple of years, books from uh, people who experienced AIDS directly, just LGBTQ books getting published, and they're using my book as a comp, um, which I think is fantastic. That's what I was hoping, you know, in the best case scenario would be possible that that this book would help add to the wave of that kind of literature going on. In terms of doing it well and doing it responsibly, that's a whole other issue because basically, you know, you're allowed to write whatever the hell you want, right? We, we live in a free society. No one's going to stop you. You're going to face feedback if you do anything poorly. If I write poorly about a dentist, I'm going to get some emails from dentists, right? That becomes much more fraught when 
I'm writing about identity, about gender, about sexuality, about trauma. Those, you know, those failures are much more egregious. They could actually do harm in the world. Um, and so it's, it, you know, you have to go into that knowing you have zero margin of error on this, which is, is and should be terrifying. Rebecca, I love your guiding questions. Um, it's a really nice frame, I think, for writers to approach uh, work like this. And I, I saw a bit of speculation online about whether you have or had a connection to the gay community and what propelled you to write on this topic. And since I couldn't find anything other than your interest in the parallels between the generation of men lost to World War I and the generation lost to AIDS, I'm curious, was, was there something that connected you to the gay community specifically? And if not, how has writing the book affected your allegiance to the gay community? Sure. I mean, I am, uh, you know, first of all, I'm an artist living in a major city. <laughs> so that, that's, that's just going to be a lot of my friends. I think even if I weren't, you know, if I look back at high school, college, those were a lot of my friends. Even it's like my, um, my mom talks about, she went in for my first grade parent teacher conference. And um, the first thing the teacher says when my mom sits down is Rebecca and her boys are doing fine, which my mom at the time took to mean, oh, she has a lot of boyfriends. Mm. They were not my boyfriends. Those were my, <laughs> those were my little six-year-old gay friends and they were great. Um, so, you know, what, whatever that, that is, you know, it, it's just a thing, but, um, you know, I, I think in, in regards particularly to the AIDS crisis, um, my interest in it, and I'm, I'm sorry, my dog is barking here. So we, we love dogs. Your okay. dog has something okay, to right. say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. In particular, you know, the connection with the AIDS epidemic has something to do, a lot to do with my familiarity with, with the gay community, my friendships within the gay community, um, but also generationally um, with the fact that I was born in 1978. And although that makes me too young to have experienced this in the sense of uh, me and my friends being at risk in the epicenter, you know, um, I missed it. You know, I was, I was a little young, but it's, it's right on target for most impressionable decade of your life. <laughs> you know, you're a kid, you're becoming aware of the world as the world is becoming aware of this crisis. And when I talk to people who are right around my age, they often understand that right away. Uh, I think it probably depends a bit on where you grew up, who your parents were, but, um, it, my parents were academics in Chicago and, um, and I, kind of, you know, whether it was the other kids in my first grade class or the people I was seeing, you know, on TV, if I stayed home sick from school and watched Donahue and I'm hearing about the AIDS crisis, I was naturally drawn to that, empathetic with those people, fascinated by what was going on, worried about what was going on. You've said that you can't good person your way into good writing. And I was wondering if you could say more about what you mean by this and what kind of cautionary message it might hold for other writers. Right. I mean, I would say, you know, the job of a writer is always imaginative empathy. It's always those leaps of imagining yourself empathetically into someone else's life. That is a prerequisite for writing anything right? That in and of itself does not mean that you can guess what it would be like for someone whose experience is very, very different from your own. I had to do years of research for this book, or there would be no way, no matter how much I loved these people, no matter how much I loved my characters, no matter how much I you know, felt it, there, there's no way that I could do justice to 
lived history, to this trauma, to to the issues of representation that were coming up. Um, the story I'm always telling in myself is that in an early chapter, I think it's the third chapter of The Great Believers, Yale, my main character, has he's lost track of his friends um, in the city, and he's walking down North Halstead in Chicago, which was and is uh, where the gay bars largely are. And he's looking for his friends, and he's looking through windows to try to find his friends. This was an early, early draft. You cannot look through the window of a gay bar in 1985 Chicago. That's not a thing. And that's not something that I, you know, that's something that came up in a conversation with a friend I was interviewing. He was talking about the bar scene, giving me just, you know, infinite little detailed memories of matchbooks and all these different things. And he mentions, well, you know, the windows would be painted black or curtained over. And I'm going, oh my God, of course. But, you know, a, a, a different version of me who had enough hubris not to do that research might have felt like I've been to those bars. I've seen those bars. I've waved to my friends through the windows of those bars. I totally know this scene. I bet I can guess what it was like. And that I would have gotten small and large things wrong. And, and even the small things, if you think about something like those windows as a small detail, it's not a small detail. That speaks directly to what it meant to be gay in 1985. And getting that wrong would be completely misrepresenting that experience. I was horrified recently, not not really like, I, I mean, I was, my, my jaw dropped for 30 seconds and then I moved on. But someone um, online who was on some rant against a lot of different writers, seems like someone maybe with some issues, um, someone alerted me to it. And he is talking about how he's heard that I did my research for the great believers by standing on a street corner and feeling the vibes, <laughs> I was like, what the hell? I did five years of research. Like not quite. <laughs> oh my God, I did so much archival. No, I mean, I, I've definitely walked, I've, I've been to street corners. <laughs> That's a thing, but, right? But like, I did archival research. I did years of interviews. I talked to doctors. I talked to nurses. I talked to lawyers. I, oh my God. Um, so hopefully he's the only nutbag out there who thinks that, but um, <laughs> like, just the contrast to what actually, to the work that actually goes into something like this was, uh, you know, hilarious to me and also horrifying that this person was saying it, but I don't think anyone was listening to him. That's so fascinating, Rebecca. And I love uh, the way you set this up as being, you know, the author's, it's our duty. We have to trust in our imaginative empathy, but in terms of writing a novel like this, your imaginative empathy isn't quite enough. You right. know, I think like, for generations, authors have been taught that it is enough. And and so I think like now we're dealing with this awareness that now we need to go further. Mm, here, here's where I would, I hope no one has ever taught anyone that because I've been, I am constantly trying to convince my students of the amount of research they need to do for anything. Mm-hmm. I, my first novel, The Borrower, was about someone who worked in a the children's section of a library. And I did, I did significant research, but I never interviewed anyone. I was too shy um, or too, you know, in that particular regard, too shy. I, you know, I had, didn't, hadn't, wasn't published yet. I felt awkward about it. And when the book came out, there were not, you know, most librarians were great about it, but there were some librarians online who were deeply upset. Not that my character had kidnapped a child, but that she did not have her MLIS degree which would be the optimal degree for working in her position. Technically, she absolutely could have had this job without it. Um, I was correct. But what I didn't know was that I was poking at a sore spot. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think there were a few other little things that I got wrong. At the time that I wrote this book, I was an elementary school teacher. I was writing about a children's librarian who was a white woman my age. I did not think for a second that I was writing across difference in any way. But the things that I didn't bother to research or was too scared to research or whatever, I fucked up. And, you know, so I, 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 I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to like jump on your question, but, um, oh, no, no, I, I, this is great. Keep going, keep going. I, have a, okay. I might have another one. Okay. So, you know, I, I, I think that this is one of many reasons that these discussions that we're having about the most fraught aspects of this are helpful, not only in and of themselves, but in their trickle down into the fact that, yeah, whatever you're doing, you, whatever you're writing that you do not know intimately yourself, you have to do research on. I like, I, I, my God, I've, you know, flung a book across the room because someone was, you know, the number of times someone has done CPR on someone who is still conscious. <laughs> like, oh my God, you'd kill the person. That is, that is not how CPR works, right? Just fucking research it. It's, you know, and if people are getting that message because of the amount of conversation that we're having around it now about identity, about representation, you know, that that is, you know, those issues are the ones that you are the most beholden to to research. But yeah, you, you gotta, you know, you want to write about a veterinarian, go talk to a veterinarian, it's going to make your book better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I guess I just think it's interesting how writers need to really expand their approach to writing in, in, in a way that's very different than I think the way that writers were traditionally kind of taught. And I see this tension happening in so many conversations, especially with older writers who say like, well, imaginative empathy isn't enough. Oh, yeah. um, and I, that's the way I was taught too. And not, not that research was off limits, but just that to trust in your imagination to, hmm. to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And, you know, we often refer to, we had Daniel Jose Older on the on the podcast and he wrote this great article in BuzzFeed about writing the other and the self. And mm-hmm. he said, I think largely what you said, I mean, he's one of his 12 tips is that you, you have to jump in. It's your responsibility to jump in and you have to jump in knowing that you might mess up, mm-hmm. but you have to do it as a conscientious creator. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, you're, there are, you know, certain, quote unquote novels that are very, you know, auto fiction, very much about the self, thinly disguised kind of thing about your own life. They don't tend to have much of a plot. Um, Some of them are great. A lot of them are insufferable. That cannot be what we read in terms of fiction for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we need things with plots that didn't happen to you. We need, um, you know, and, and whether it's, you know, secondary characters or main characters, we need people who are different from you demographically. I am not going to write a novel and fill it entirely with white college educated women. You know, even name one Sarah, name one Elizabeth, and they're all basically me. Like, that's obnoxious. <laughs> so no, this, this is the work of fiction. And um, I do worry that, and I'm sorry, the, the YA discourse, especially on Twitter, get so policey about the entire concept of, you know, don't even, don't even attempt this. Don't even try this. I think it's, you know, I, I will not touch YA literature with a 10 foot pole um, because of not just that, but other, other issues with the YA reading community, not the teenagers, the like 25 year old YA reading community. I started once to write a YA novel and realized I wanted nothing to do with that world because of the way things like this are, made made so black and white 
and people are waiting for you to mess up. And I, I want nothing to do with it. I, I, I hope that we maintain in adult literature to have a little bit more of an understanding of what we're really trying to do here, the ways that any piece of fiction is going to extend beyond a writer's own life. Thanks for bringing that up, Rebecca. It's interesting. Maybe a topic for a future uh, podcast grant, because it, it makes me think of the ways that cancel culture starts to infiltrate fiction and how problematic it can be and sort of the the tendrils that it has into all sorts of spaces. So, you know, and yet double-edged because it's an important conversation as well. So I, I want to pivot a little bit because I want to bring it back to a conversation about epidemics. I mean, it's obviously mm. super fascinating that you wrote this book before COVID, um, but the parallels between the AIDS crisis and the COVID epidemic have been widely discussed. And of course, you have Dr. Fauci, who is the primary link between, you know, the leadership of both crises. So as someone who was so immersed in the 80s and what it was like for all those young men that were dying of AIDS, did you feel the parallels to COVID? And what has this last year plus been like for you? Right. Um, You know, I can't complain. My kids are 10 and 13, which is maybe the best ages to have a weird year, you know, um, I've gotten writing done. I'm finishing a new book. I'm fine. That said, it's it, one of the things that's been interesting for me is that most of the European translations of the great believers came out this past year and came out into a completely different world than the English version came out into. So my interviews, you know, with, of course, all over Zoom, because any travel I had was canceled, but my interviews in Germany, in Italy, in Poland, in France, you know, they're, they're all about the parallels between AIDS and COVID. Um, and I think it's, it's given a different spin to that book there. It's given people a different lens to read it through. Um, so, you know, I think that it is really dangerous, of course, to comp- to equate these two things. It's also, I think, dangerous to dismiss any similarities. I do think we all, anyone who went through high school knows how to compare and contrast. It was always my least favorite kind of paper in high school. I was like, they're the same, but they're different. What are, (laughs) um, what more do you want to know? But, you know, comparing and contrasting here, I think is useful. I think that's how we can learn stuff. Tremendous differences in stigma, which is really, uh, you know, next to nothing for COVID and was an enormous factor in AIDS, still is an enormous factor in AIDS. Tremendous differences in uh, public recognition, in funding, in national urgency, tremendous differences in the virus, just in the speed with which it becomes symptomatic. So um, there are all those differences. What is tragically predictable and the same is the ways in which marginalized communities and people are hit hardest, hit first, given the least resources, people who in in America, people who do not have health insurance, being the people who are the most at risk for exposure to um, to things, whether, you know, with COVID, whether it's, you know, workers who cannot afford to take time off or um, with AIDS, it, it, there's an ongoing issue, of course, with HIV that you know, so many of the new infections that we're ha- that we're getting in a, in the U.S., which is an enormous number. We have 1.2 million Americans living with HIV still. A lot of those new infections are people, young people without health insurance, people in already marginalized communities, um, people who might lack the network or the education to 
protect themselves, to catch it early, et cetera. The way that Trump and, and company kind of washed their hands early, almost the moment that it seemed like COVID was really going to settle in black and brown communities in cities, which of course did not last very long, but there was this moment of like, oh, that's who's really, really going to be hit. And it was true. But then of course we get like, you know, farmers in South Dakota and everything too. But the moment that, that moment of like, oh, okay, then we're, that's those, that's those people over there. You could see this sort of palpable relief and this sense of we can kind of ignore this now, which is exactly what, you know, happened with the Republican party in the 1980s. And exactly, honestly, what is still happening with HIV in the U.S. now um, and globally now is, oh, okay, you know, we don't need to worry about it. It's those people over there because of decisions they made. We're putting this in a in a bucket with poverty and all these other issues. That, those parallels, you know, anyone I think who's paid attention to the AIDS epidemic could see those parallels coming a mile away. And they showed up just, you know, right on cue. Rebecca, I want to loop back to our theme of permission and talk about a different angle of permission to kind of conclude the interview. Um, And you wrote this beautiful essay uh, in LitHub that I want to read from. You wrote, every beginning writer wonders if they have permission to write. Some wonder if their voices are worthwhile. Others write without the support of a family. For me in the beginning, it was about stealing time from my real job to work on what I feared was a hobby. Two Saturday hours at Starbucks felt dearly bought, and I never would have squandered them. And this sentiment is so ever-present, I think, for all writers, you know, the question of permission to write. And you talk about the time being dearly bought, which is so much better than saying that it's stolen time. And we often hear writers feeling ashamed of the time they take to do their writing. And so I was wondering if you can tell us more about your approach or relationship to this dearly bought time, especially now that you're a parent. Yeah, and and certainly, you know, it's interesting. My my, my first novel, um, I began it before I had children, but by the time it was done, um, I had a child, and then. Uh, we sold it when I was pregnant with my second child. So it was, mm. it was all wrapped up in there. Um, plus I was still, I was still teaching elementary school full time. And um, yeah, you know, it, it is, gosh, it's so much easier when you're making money off of it. <laughs> and and it, it doesn't have to be a, like a living even. It's just, you know, at the point where I could sell a story to a literary magazine a couple times a year and get $500. It was like, Oh my God, no, this is like, this is a way, this is a job, quote unquote. That was justification enough, um, for me. And, you know, I have a really, really supportive husband, but he, he would do this thing. It's he, I, he's stopped because I've, I've told the story in public enough times that he's like, okay, fine. Um, but even once I had books out, I would, you know, I'd be, working on deadline and incredibly stressed and I have another novel due and it, you know, I would have been, you know, watching the kids all day and he comes home and I'm going to go to the coffee shop and get something done. And he would say, as I'm on my way out the door, he'd say, have fun. You deserve this. And as if I were going off to get a massage, you know, (laughs) and I was, he's a high school English teacher. I'm like, what if I said that to you as you were going in to teach sophomores, you deserve this. (laughs) Like, what a terrible thing to say. I mean, of course it's a wonderful job. Of course I love writing, but like, you know, when you're in the trenches on the, you know, finishing up a book, it's like that. It it basically, it it was a supportive thing to say, but it's sort of, subconsciously sending and confirming the message that this is 
a luxury. This is a hobby. Mm. This is relaxation. This, you know, um, this is something that you're allowing yourself to do. And this is what I had books out, you know, I'm like, I'm, this is my job. This is how I'm making a living. Um, the thing is, you know, I te- so I teach a novel writing class at Story Studio, the organization you mentioned in my bio. Um, it's a year-long novel workshop, and I've um, I've taught it for nine years now. And these are it's it's highly competitive. So these are people who have a really viable novel going, and they, you know, to a person as I work with them throughout the year all of them end up feeling this huge guilt about the time they're taking this, you know, the amount of the investment in what might turn out not to come to anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Which of course I I think is the wrong way to put it because even if this isn't the novel, the next one is, and you've learned so much, but I, I know exactly what it is that they're going through. I think every writer goes through that, this sense of, you know, what am I, what am I doing Um, it's, you know, it's not like you, you know, never goes away. Right. And it takes, it might take you 10 years to write your first novel, which it it took me. It's not like, I'm going to try, you know, origami and I I made a duck and it's okay. And I'm going to (laughs) make another one. It's a little better. And it's like, you know, can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm finishing all these ducks. I can give them away. I can sell them on Etsy. This is, it's like, you're, you know, doing this for 10 years and you have no idea if the paper is going to disintegrate or, you know, um, so, um, I get it. But I think um, what part of what I was saying in that quote, in that essay was how grateful I was um, in writing The Great Believers and in having this just kind of sense of, oh, my God, do I get to write this? Am I am I allowed to write this? A return to that feeling of of dearly bought time or or of dearly bought permission um, to do this, which I think was actually helpful as unhelpful as that feeling was when I was younger and I was, you know, feeling guilty for working on writing, uh, returning there was helpful. Just not taking it for granted, uh, knowing that, um, you know, I, I couldn't, I don't know. I, you know, I, I wasn't going to mess around and, and mm-hmm. end up on Twitter. I, you know, it just, it, it felt like, like I'd been given it, you know, especially at the point where I had had so many one-on-one interviews with people who had really poured their lives out for me. I felt a tremendous sense of responsibility. Like I'd been entrusted with these people's stories. Um, Not that they expected to see their own story on the page, but just the the trust that they gave me to sit down with me for hours, you know, a couple of times and and tell me everything. It felt like, uh, you know, I can't believe I get to do this. I, you know, and, and it felt that that sense of urgency that I might've felt, you know, when I had exactly two hours a week to go to Starbucks and write and I have to, you know, I'm so lucky to be here and I better get this done um, in a very different way. You know, I had, I had a lot more time, but just that, God, I, I, I need to do this and I need to do it well and I need to do it fast. And um, I'm not going to stop and, and, you know, uh, decide I want to write a screenplay for a year instead. You know? <laughs> I hope that is uh, propelling you through into your new project that you're working on right now, Rebecca. Thank you so much for for telling us about your process. Yeah, absolutely. I I, uh, I have this new novel due on September 1st, so we'll see. Oh, soon. Good. Congratulations yeah. and good luck. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Yeah, thank you for having me on. 
We will be right back with today's book talk. For today's book pick, I'm choosing David Mitchell's 2011 novel, The Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zouet. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, But this is a really wonderful novel set in 18th century Nagasaki Harbor, uh, which at the time is the Japanese Empire's single port and window onto the world. And the whole idea of this is that Japan was trying to keep the West at bay. Uh, And Mitchell is English, but he lived in Japan for eight years. And I just was thinking about this idea of writing responsibly and immersing yourself in a culture. In this case, David immersed himself in Japan uh, and he won all kinds of awards for this book and was very talkative in interviews about his affinity for Japan since he had lived there for so much time. And Rebecca certainly doesn't suggest that you need to live in a different culture in order to write a book well. But I was thinking about all of the research that she did for The Great Believers and how, in essence, if you're doing five years of deep research and interviews and living with these characters, that that's another form of being a conscientious creator. And so there are tons and tons and tons of books that do it well. And really, this is just a reiteration of all of the themes that we've been talking about today. We would love to hear a book that you loved where the writer wrote the other well. Feel free to send us a note or tell us on social media. would love to have some interaction with all of you. And thank you. Thanks, Brooke. I want to uh, pause and just thank our listeners for listening and for writing reviews on Apple Podcasts. And I want to read this one by Sauvignon Singh. I mean, what, what, a, what a wonderful name, right? She wrote this just two days ago. Writers Unite. Every episode I've listened to has provided excellent motivation and tips for staying in the game of writing. Although my genre is memoir, I always hear something from authors in other genres that can open avenues for me in my process. Thank you, Brooke and Grant, for finding such amazing authors and asking them questions that get to the heart of the matter. Did, did you plant that, Brooke? Did you write that? <laughs> Should have. <laughs> thank you so much, Simon Yun Singh, and thank you to everybody who listens and reviews us on the Apple Podcasts or just gives us a rating. We are a weekly podcast, which means we'll be back in your podcast queue next week. Um, you can download us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts on the internet. I think we're basically on all the main platforms. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.